Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. This week, we're going to be talking about a Basic Instinct knockoff for the direct-to-video market that boomed in the 1990s, Animal Instincts. been going through the Sopranos series. Love it. It's still one of the best shows out there still to this day. It holds up. I have decided that one of the things I need to do as a parent is show my son important films before they are spoiled for him. So the this past week, we watched The Usual Suspects. My son Ooh. is 12. And I had forgotten how graphic the rape and murder of children is in the middle of that film. But otherwise, uh, no, wait, hold on. Let me clarify. Rape of the wife, murder of the children, not the rape and murder of children. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for clarifying that. My son son was still pretty shaken. He, you know, was visibly frozen, but... When we got to the end of the film, he was just stunned by, like, why is no one talking about this? You know, this film was amazing. Like, why why haven't I heard about this before now? And I explained to him that there is a special pact when it comes to films that have twist endings and spoilers and that you just don't talk about them with other people because you run the risk of ruining the film. So I had to induct him into the Society of Adults who agree not to ruin films for other people. So we'll see if he succeeds at not going straight to school and saying, guess who Kaiser Soze is? (laughs) 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 I watched a Western that has been on my list for decades to see. It's a John Wayne Western. I'm not a huge John Wayne fan. I'm just not. It's not my kind of thing. In fact, I used to hate Westerns because I thought they were all like John Wayne. (laughs) But in the early 1990s, I worked in a bookstore. And one of the areas of the bookstore I was in charge of was the Westerns. And I figured if I'm in charge of the Westerns, I should at least read one of these things. (laughs) (laughs) So I read Hondo. By Louis L'Amour. I figured Louis L'Amour is the best-selling Western author in history. And Hondo is one of his biggest-selling books. So I'll read Hondo. It was okay. I mean, it was a lot like Shane, which I had already seen the movie Shane. So when I read Hondo, I'm like, this is just like Shane. Well, apparently, they made a movie of it, and it came out right around the same time as Shane. And John Wayne claimed that one of the reasons it didn't do so well was because of its similarity to Shane, um, that it was overshadowed by Shane. It has a lot of standard Western tropes. The Apaches are the villains. So, of course, there's some racist depiction to some degree. But Hondo himself is half Apache, so it's not as bad as you would think. And You are clearly supposed to root against the Apaches, but the film is a lot more sympathetic to them than you think. Like when you watch it, the white people are like, well, we're the ones that broke the treaty, but still yet somehow they're supposed to be the good guys. It's not directed by John Ford. Everybody thinks of John Ford, John Wayne as like a pairing, although a part of it was. So like 
the director by the end of the film had other commitments so the last final battle scene was directed by john ford uncredited i give it about a three out of five stars i'd say if it's your kind of thing if you like john wayne if you're a big fan you're gonna love it i'm just not but let's get into animal instincts i love it you know what i feel i feel uh vindicated I thought you would. No, I see it. There's two things that make the world go round. One is sex, and money. Now we're in the same business, you and me, and, and your wife. We got the same uh, animal instincts, you know what I mean? Well, there's two kinds of animals. I wanted to eat, and I wanted to get eaten. You know what I want to see? I want to see Fletcher Ross mauled and then eaten. <laughs> Can you dig it? <laughs> Animal Instincts came out in 1992. Figure I'll give you a little background on the year 1992 before we go into details about the film. So in 1992, apples were 99 cents a pound. Bread was 99 cents a loaf. Eggs were approximately 93 cents a dozen. Milk, $2.78 a gallon. Gas, $1.13 a gallon. I miss those days. Wow. The days before all the wars in the Middle East. Yeah, that was the year I graduated from high school, y'all. By the end of the year, there were a whopping 25 websites on the World Wide Web. Basic Instinct was the ninth highest grossing film. Aladdin was number one. Wait, Aladdin was the highest grossing film? Yes. Yes. Of wow. 1992. Okay. Yeah. In January, January 19th, Nature Boy Ric Flair becomes the WWF champ at the Royal Rumble. This is notable because... Normally in the WWF, and wrestling fans can correct me if I'm wrong, normally the champion is decided in a different way, in a, like at WrestleMania or something. But at this one, both the Undertaker and Hulk Hogan were disqualified, and so the Royal Rumble decided who was going to have the title for the next year, and that was Nature Boy Ric Flair. Many uh, people consider him one of the greatest wrestlers or the greatest wrestler of all time. February 3rd, a Florida judge rejects Kathy Willett's Prozac-induced nymphomania slash couples therapy defense for prostitution and is sentenced to three years probation and 400 hours community service and rejects her husband, Jeff Willett's Broward County Sheriff's deputy impotence slash couples therapy for running a bordello and wiretapping said bordello as so he received 364 days in jail and five years probation 15 months house arrest and in march kathy willits appears nude in the march issue of playboy magazine march 3rd bugsy is nominated for a whopping 10 academy awards but the silence of the lambs is the big winner taking home five awards including best director and best picture I like it with fava beans and a nice Chianti. 
April 29th, the Los Angeles riots occur when four police officers are acquitted despite being caught on video beating Rodney King. The riots last for six days and result in 63 deaths and over a billion dollars in property damage before they're quelled by the U.S. military. This was a tumultuous year. I had to look hard not to find downer stories. I don't think there was a tumultuous a year this tumultuous again until 9-11. Mm-hmm. Then in May, the 27th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which is, states that congressional pay raises don't go into effect until after the next ele- election, was finally ratified. Have we talked about this on the podcast before? Because this is one of my favorite stories from that year. No. Okay, so there, it was proposed in 1789, but it languished until there's this ultimate rules lawyer. This is such a gamer move. There was a guy, Gregory Watson, who was a poli-sci major at Austin, and he got a C on a paper in which he argued that it was still pending ratification. He got a C, so he appealed the grade, and his appeal failed. So then he started a letter-writing campaign to state legislatures to get the 27th Amendment finally ratified, which he succeeded in doing. And so then they changed his grade to an A. (laughs) Wow. In June, actor David Carradine begins filming what will mark the first major comeback of his career, the TV show Kung Fu The Legend Continues, a sequel to the TV series that originally brought him to prominence. June 23rd, New York Mafia boss John Gotti is sentenced to life in prison on racketeering and murder charges. July 10th, Panamanian dictator Manuel Noriega is sentenced to 40 years on drug trafficking, money laundering, and racketeering charges in a Miami, Florida court. July 22nd, Colombian cartel leader Pablo Escobar escapes from prison. August 4th, The DOJ, the Department of Justice in the U.S., steps in with civil rights charges against four acquitted LAPD officers in the Rodney King beating, and two were convicted by a grand jury. August 21st, U.S. Marshals attempt to execute a bench warrant on Randy Weaver for failure to appear in court on a firearms charge, leading to an 11-day siege of his home in Ruby Ridge, Idaho. In the end, one U.S. Marshal, Weaver's wife, Weaver's son, and dog were all killed. Mm. In fact, the shooting of the dog is kind of what kicked everything off. September 5th, Batman the Animated Series premieres on Fox. September 24th, the Sci-Fi Channel begins its first broadcast with a showing of Star Wars. Nice. October 8th, the video game Mortal Kombat was released. October 11th, Deion Sanders suits up to play for the Atlanta Falcons and the Atlanta Braves on the same day. (laughs) And October 21st, Animal Instincts is released. So let's hear about the background to this film, which was meant to be uh, to ride the coattails of Basic Instinct, but has an interesting backstory beyond that. I am almost convinced it is not meant to ride on the coattails of Basic Instinct in any way other than sharing a word in the title because this film lacks the viciousness that Basic Instinct had that made it so titillating. The film is based on a story that is 
so strange it can't be believed, but it is also like almost heartwarming and sweet in its sappy melodrama-ness compared to Basic Instinct, which is a real mind trip. But to give you a little backstory, Animal Instincts is based on the story of Jeff and Kathy Willits, a classic Florida man story, <laughs> uh, if you ever did hear one. The, the way the story goes, they placed an ad in the local newspaper that read, Frosted blonde, great tan, hot body. At this point, you should hear the saxophone and the smooth, smooth jazz in your head right now. Totally Great tan, hot body, very sexual. Turquoise eyes, romantic and sensual, seeking generous, affluent, executive male for day-slash-evening interludes. Fun-loving and hot. Enclose business card. Which they did, apparently. These Johns would come by and deliver their business cards and come for a good time. The Willits ended up with a whole Rolodex full of these business cards and a little black book full of notes. And a quote-unquote printable example of one of these notes was Friday, May 31st, Steve. Talk too much. So, <laughs> but there were notes about the physical dimensions of some of these men, their kinks, uh, you know, what what they were like as people. And obviously they had their business cards that so they could trace back to them. These pieces led prosecutors to believe that the intention with this scheme was extortion and blackmail. But the way the defense goes is this was all to help bring the couple together and solve the wife's nymphomania problem. She entertained 107 men over a period of five months, sometimes as many as eight a day, earning $2,000 a week. So it's hard to tell whether this was a very successful business scheme or I I don't know how much money you'd have to pay me to have sex with eight different businessmen a day for five months. <laughs> like, I don't think, but you know, that's, that's me. Uh, there, she supposedly was in such great need of physical attention all the time that this was the only way to save their marriage. So the defense goes by their famous attorney, Ellis Rubin, who just before this case had taken another one where he claimed that a teenage boy had killed his elderly neighbor because he was watching too much television and TV had rotted his brain. So the nymphomania as insanity defense is not out of line for Ellis Rubin, though it did ultimately cause him a bit of trouble. This is a story where even the lawyers had to have lawyers. <laughs> so, oh, wow. <laughs> um, basically, it's all fun and games until there's a videotape, and then people got serious. One of the main pieces of this case, which is touched on in the film, is that the Johns were really anxious not to have the names released, and a lot of them didn't want the trial to go through. There was a lot of lobbying. And the prosecution was concerned that if they withheld the names, then it was going to make it look like they were trying to protect people within the government, which, of course, they were. <laughs> so um, the most famous tape or, or real piece of evidence that was coming to light was the vice mayor was one of the Willits clients. And this videotape was going to be sold by Ellis Rubin's 
son who was also working in his law firm, tape was going to be sold for $60,000. But when news of this got out, then it really upped the stakes for the trial. Ultimately, they were able to file a plea bargain and Kathy was sentenced to three years probation and 400 hours community service. And Jeff, her husband, was sentenced to 364 days in prison and five years of probation. They, in the meantime, got real famous, sold tons of merch, uh, think buttons that said, I'm not on the list, and T-shirts <laughs> that said, Kathy did Fort Lauderdale. They, you know, would go on vacations and there were TV crews that would follow them and basically trace their every move. She did some centerfolds for Playboy. So this was actually a really great turn and they seemed to take it very well until <laughs> uh, after serving this probation period, Jeff gets, he gets out of prison and within a week he has tried to assault Kathy. Turns out that she's pregnant with some other man's child. And after this assault attempt, then Jeff goes back to prison. Kathy also goes to prison for failing to fulfill her community service because no one wanted to hire a famously problematic person <laughs> to, um, to participate in their wholesome organizations. So Kathy also ended up going to jail the one piece of this that was really hard to find, there, the the news of the time period focus a lot on the salaciousness of the story, how many partners she had, how brazen she is about her sexuality, which I'm not clear that this was all of her own initiative, so I'm hesitant to applaud her for it because um, it seems like her husband maybe pushed her into it, which I'm not going to jump up and cheer for. But supposedly the way they got caught was she became emotionally involved with one of the Johns and the husband got jealous and then threatened to kill the guy. Oh. <laughs> so that ultimately was what caused one of the Johns to call the police and tip them off. That part of the story doesn't really show up in the film, but what we do see is the sense of loneliness and frustration within the marriage, despite the fact that the main couple seemed to really care about each other in some ways and just had a terribly dysfunctional marriage and others. Anyway, it's interesting to go through these articles because you can read between the lines the voyeuristic fascination of people during the time period. One of the main things is... Noriega, the Panamanian strongman, was also on trial in Florida at the same time. And he personally got very frustrated by how little airtime and attention he was getting for his case <laughs> because everyone was so obsessed with this Florida couple. So wow. I think as we go and talk about the film, you know, talking about the, the voyeuristic elements and why are we interested in this I'm curious to hear whether either of you think the film is commenting on this or and being critical or, you know, trying to draw attention to to that or whether it's just fully embracing the exact kind of mentality that made people so interested in this case in the first place. Well, before we get into that, I want to say a couple of things about the real life case. So this movie isn't supposed to be 
a dramatization of it, but it tracks close on a lot of axes. But uh, a couple of things that stuck out to me about this was that, one, he was a cop. He was actually a sheriff's deputy. And like the sheriff or someone above him in the sheriff's department was one of the Johns. All right. So that's an important part of the story. And then I don't know if it was the vice mayor. There was more than one politician, Mm -hmm. but the vice mayor, it was either him or some other rival politician that was also caught up in the scandal as one of the Johns had campaigned on a family values. Let's clean up Florida. Like, meanwhile, he's like doing this on the side. That kind of hypocrisy always like really like gets gets me like I don't get that whole like oh we're all pro family values but like really you're not you know well and we'll get to this when we talk about the film but I think that is a piece of this that made the prosecutors think they were doing this for the extortion and blackmail is that they explicit they seem to have gone after people in power who had a lot to lose by by any of this coming to light and so that they're the needling, the prosecution was really skeptical of this nymphomania defense because they were like, if it was nymphomania, then like, wouldn't anybody have, have done the job? Like, it could have been the cable guy, could have been, you know, the grocery store guy <laughs> down the street. But like, the Johns they chose were explicitly like executives, like government officials. They went after people in power who had money. I think there's a couple of reasons there. It's like one like people who have money to blow, like people in those positions have the kind of money to blow on this stuff. And I remember this, the real case. And to me, it seemed like a distinct possibility could have been, there was a sort of blackmail angle to it, but only if people blew the whistle on them, right? It was an insurance policy more than anything else. It's like, okay, you know, you're welcome to come here and like, spend money and whatever but if you try to shut us down then you know what well we've we've got this you know right that was my recollection from the time now it's been a long time it has been a real long time since then so i don't remember the details i'm not an expert i haven't even thought about that case in years and years and years i completely forgot about it Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Do we get a snack or a drink this time? Oh, honey, if it's a movie about sex, we're having a drink. (laughs) So I thought that there was no drink more appropriate for this film than Sex on the Beach. Ah, yes. (laughs) Okay, so... A classic recipe for sex on the beach is an ounce and a half of vodka, half ounce peach schnapps, half ounce chambord or creme de la cassis, uh, one and a half ounces of orange juice or pineapple juice. It's optional. One and a half ounce of cran juice. 
So um, you add vodka, peach schnapps, Chambord, OJ, and Crayon to a shaker with ice and shake. Strain it into a highball glass. Garnish it with a cocktail umbrella or a slice of orange, or you could make a flag with an orange and a cherry. It's completely up to you. Pineapple has been mentioned as an option. Pineapple juice has been mentioned as an option instead of or in addition to the orange juice, however you prefer, which, you know, supposedly pineapple juice makes your naughty bits taste a little bit better during oral, but we won't go there. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> um, this drink was very popular in the 80s and 90s party scene. It's still a favorite of mine today. The love of the drink did fade with the uh, onset of the cocktail renaissance. It was first mentioned in 1982 in the American's Bartender School Guide to Drinks, which canceled out the rumor that it was invented in 1987 by bartender Ted Vizio to promote peach schnapps. It's also rumored to be a combination of two drinks, the Fuzzy Navel and the Cape Cotter. So there is our drink. We're going to the lobby. I'm going to make mine at all. This might be the first softcore porn film I've ever watched. I've, of course, explored <laughs> both ends of the spectrum, like everything from the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, which is very romantic and no flesh whatsoever, to, you know, you name it, um, Deep Throat, like all the classics. But this was the first softcore porn film, and I... I did not care for it. I I have to say, like, usually there's at least something to think about in terms of the male gaze and how the film is commenting on the male gaze or something like that. But there was nothing. There was, I, I have never been so bored looking at a woman's breasts. And that's coming from someone who does burlesque. And like, you know, that's, that's a passion of mine. But I, I was, I was not into it. Shannon Worry is not a great actress. She's not the worst actress ever. She's not a great actress, though, but she does have an amazing body. I mean, I got to give her credit for that and is not at all shy about showing it. So this movie comes in two versions, an R-rated one and a NC-17. I guess an unrated one, unrated one. So you have to remember, nowadays, we're a little jaded because we have access to nudity all the time on the internet and stuff like that. This was not the case in 1992. So this was apparently where Blockbuster drew the line. They're like, okay, we're not going to do hardcore porn, but we need to have something. So they created a, its own section at the height of this for just the erotic thrillers. There were so many of them that were released on home video in the wake of Basic Instinct. I have the feeling that this was already in the works and they just slapped the title Animal Instincts on it to ride the coattails of Basic Instinct. I don't know. We have scant little information about the production of this. I don't think it's a good movie. I didn't find it incredibly engaging. But if you think of it in terms of someone that's fast forwarding this on video to the good parts, the good parts are pretty good. Like the good parts are, are <laughs> okay. beautifully shot. All right, I think the good parts are hit and miss, and and here's here's why. There's a lot of biting people's chins. The kiss, like the sex part, is great. The kissing is really atrocious. Like yes. these people do not know how to kiss, and it it was like, what are you? 
why is your tongue there again? Like, you don't need to run your tongue all over her face. Like, no one asked you to do that. Yeah. Why is she putting her tongue all over their faces, too? That's just weird to me. Yeah. I don't remember making out like that in my in the 90s. Yeah, there was, <laughs> there was a lot of a lot of chins, a lot, a lot more chin involved in the kissing that I remember. So that's one thing. The other thing is one of her partners is this gorgeous, hot German blonde who's actually part of another couple. But then it seems like she has more of a fling with the wife in that couple than than with the husband mm-hmm. and Ingrid. there is a les what's supposed to be a lesbian sex scene in which it is very clear that the director has never encountered a lesbian never talked to them has done no research and the extent of his imagination of what it would be like if two women had sex together was oh let's rub our nipples together have our nipples kiss and that is what <laughs> <laughs> what is going to turn them on? And I was just like, guys, these women are not using their hands in the right places nearly enough for this scene to work. But right. Was this before or after Queer as Folk came out? That's what I want to know. Way before. Okay. Way so there, before. There's that. There's that. But, I mean, surely they had films that they could reference to, I don't know, educate themselves? I'm not sure they did. particular topic? I don't think they did either. I wanted to jump in here and say a little bit about this director because the director came out of hardcore porn. Oh, well, there it is. (laughs) He was recruited to do this. The name he directs under in hardcore porn was Jeffrey Dark, and he's considered to be one of the best directors. From people who work in the adult film industry, they say that it was good until he left to try to do mainstream stuff, and then that was the end of good porn until he came back. Also, an interesting thing about his dabbling at this time in the 90s with non-porn stuff is, one, he changed his name to Greg Hippolyte? Hippolyta or something for this, which I guess is his middle name. He may be the only director in the history of directors who changed his name to do non-porn. Like, he's like, oh, I can't ruin my porn reputation, you know? This is my non-porn name. <laughs> so also, while we were doing this, pure coincidence, I was working on this and writing out my notes and I was, I've got a TV over here and I was watching music videos and I was watching the Cherry Poppin' Daddies Zoot Suit Riot. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is actually a pretty cool video. Get to the end, directed by Jeffrey Dark. That's so funny. <laughs> One of the things he did during his time period away from porn was direct this music video for the Cherry Pop and Daddies. Didn't you say that people who direct music videos typically don't direct movies very well? Yes, I did. And I still hold to that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The people that come out of music videos. Now, he comes out of porn, which that's an even weirder one. I don't know many people who have gone from porn to mainstream. I'm talking about people who started on on music videos and then went to mainstream films. So, yeah, this film has all the cliches. In fact, you mentioned earlier the cable guy. Yes, the cable guy shows up. Yes. And and I, all I can hear in my head, although it came out years later, is bound chicka bow wow. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm thinking of Maud Lebowski showing Jeff 
you know, yes. the dude, the, the video of the beaver picture. And, yes. and, and the cable guy shows up, you know, and she's, she's like, you can imagine what happens next. And he's like, he fixes the cable. <laughs> so hearing Jeff Bridges voice say that in my head when I was watching this, I was like laughing out loud. <laughs> I think that this is not the most horrible film in the world. Joanne and David are the natural exhibitionist voyeur couple. And I felt like someone should have done this on screen before, even if it wasn't softcore. There should have been the voyeur and the exhibitionist. Like, this seems to be something that should have been done before, and I can't find anything prior to this where that was a thing on film. It came out many years later, but didn't it remind you a little bit of Loft with the guy videotaping? Yes. Yes. A couple other things I did like about this is David Carradine threw in some really cool stuff. There's a, a scene where he gets arrested and like he's just brought this suitcase of money. Mm -hmm. To the room and like they're arresting him and he's like looking back at the suitcase like, um, you know. He clearly wants it, but he can't say anything because he doesn't want to alert the cops to the fact that there's this briefcase full of money. And it's just this little piece, but is so well done because in just a couple of looks, he conveys all of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is why Carradine was such a great actor. And then there's one scene where the main police officer, David, and his partner are riding along and his partner's talking about how he wants to like write for movies and stuff like that. And he says... Right for TV. That's where the money is. <laughs> and then later, there's a scene where one of the Johns says, how long have you been doing this? And she says to him, long enough to know how to make a lawyer drop his briefs because he's a lawyer. Oh, my gosh. I got yeah. that quote. Isn't that too. quote so awesome? I was just like, OK, that's a good one. She had a couple good lines. She had another one um, be right before... She gets involved with um, the character who is this, the parallel to the vice mayor in the actual case. But the the head of the police department who's going to be running for mayor. Um, and mm -hmm. he says something like, do you even know who I am? Like, I, you know, control the whole system or I am the system. And she says, you know what I say? Fuck the system. And it's just like a perfect, <laughs> like, oh, oh, that was good. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. It seems to be the first one that got through the gates after Basic Instinct. But the floodgates opened and there were tons of these things that came out. It was exhausting. Do you remember exhausting. walking into a blockbuster and just seeing tons and tons and tons of these? Like, Yeah, and I remember the trend and it was exhausting and boring. My take on the show is it just reminded me of Cinemax if you turn it on at midnight. It's like every show like that. It's that's the, the whole reason why it's called Skinamax. It's just soft porn. That's softcore porn. And it, it somehow made the mainstream. And, and somehow they got David Carradine in it. And that was not a good comeback for him. <laughs> well, his comeback happened after this, right? Yeah. While he was making this, he was in the process of pre-production for Kung Fu. And that yeah. actually was like my mom watched that show. You know, he, he should have just stuck with that and not gotten involved in this awful movie. It was terrible. I was not a fan of it at all. I was just like waiting for it to be done. 
Well, it was a paycheck, right? Nobody would hire him. He had a substance abuse problem. Yeah. He had a lot of problems in the 70s and the 80s, you know? So, like, mm -hmm. by the 90s, he was, like, you know... He was going through kind of what Mickey Rourke went through. Very much like Mickey Rourke. Yeah. Very much like Mickey Rourke. Without all the plastic surgery that messed his face up. But there's that. I think my takeaway is I hope someone takes this film and then makes a modern, more critical update that takes some of the stuff that's in it and just goes a little further. Mm -hmm. There's a scene in the beginning when she talks about having these fantasies of all of these men doting on her and that she is fantasizing about being used by men and passed around and that she's looking for that level of attention from her husband and that need to be desirable and not really thinking about it of what she wants and her pleasure, but that her whole sense of that is framed through how men enjoy her body. Mm -hmm. I feel like the film almost is telling the audience, hey, this is not okay that this is how women see themselves. This is going to lead to misery if this is how this is going. But the film doesn't quite get there. So there are these moments where you have an opportunity to kind of put the pieces together and see how screwed up all of this is. Mm -hmm. But then the film just spends way too much time indulging the audience in watching this and, and in having yeah. the pleasure of watching it happen. So I almost want to see, like, if you've seen Nightcrawler, which is a similar kind of film about voyeurism, but particularly about how we all love tuning into the 10 o'clock news to see, like, all the violence, the car accidents, you know, all, mm -hmm. all of that and our thirst for violence, to take a nightcrawler kind of approach to this story that intertwines the psychology of, of this more. The way I would like to see this revised is the Sharon Stone type attitude. So that this is an empowering experience for her. I feel like not just this film, but a lot of films at the time, they had to moralize and be like, see, this is bad and it will only lead to ruin. I would like to see one where it's like, they are living the dream. They both are in connection with each other. It really is right for them. Maybe remove the financial reason. But then the tension, the whatever comes from the fact that society saying somehow, some way, this is wrong. We're going to stop you from doing this. I like right. the attitude that Sharon Stone had where it was just like, yeah, I fucked him. You know, I that's what I do. You know, <laughs> like, right. Yeah, and it's really no big deal that I have sex just like a man does. But there's a huge difference. Like the the difference that I'm trying to point out is that for Sharon Stone, it is she's getting what she wants, her mm -hmm. her pleasure and her desires. And that what's difficult about this is the film is pointing to something really like a paradox that's really interesting and has perplexed feminists for a while, which is. If you have internalized the male gaze and your whole concept of your body and pleasure is based around this other person's point of view, is it okay if you're getting off on that or not? Like, you know, if if it's what brings you pleasure, is that ultimately the only thing that matters? Or is, is there some higher pleasure that you could have if you were in tune with your own desires separate from the, from the male gaze? And I think that's where the film... It, it can't get to that Sharon Stone level because it's not it's not querying what she really wants. 
and it just kind of leaves you with the it's it's okay that what she wants is to be desired by men and and not make it more complicated than that. No, I I think we agree. Yeah, we just gave two different ways Angles. they could have made it. Yeah, more sort of an empowering rather than a mm-hmm. disempowering kind of film. The take I have on it is just I would really like to see a film where you do you is fine without the moralizing. Yeah, right. Things are different now. They're just different. Like. Things are more in the forefront now than they were back in 1992. Like people, you know, had their arrangements with their partners, but it wasn't well known because monogamy was the top tier relationship that you had with your married partner, right? You were monogamous. That was it. That's what was assumed, right? Well, nowadays things are different. People have their agreements. There are polyamorous couples out there. There are couples that fulfill their desire. There are swingers. There are all kinds of things that are now kind of more okay, more mainstream. And so I would be interested to see that take on it without the prostitution. Yeah, you know what yeah, I, mean? I agree. W- without the money. Yeah. It, it would be interesting to see, you know, a couple like, this is how we stay together. This is the arrangement that we've made and what we've agreed upon. And which they do have some things like that, but I feel like if this movie were made today, that's kind of how it would be. And I do think we need to contextualize it in terms of time, because my recollection was most people wouldn't even know the words polyamory, non-monogamy, mm-hmm. even non-monogamy has monogamy in the word. People would be like, non-monogamy, what, what is that? You know, so I, I think right. that prostitution was the only way they could wrap their heads around it. You know, right. This is one of the areas where I feel like the film did a good job of filling in the gaps insofar as you think this is meant to be a comment or based upon the Jeff and Kathy Willett's story. One thing everyone was really hung up on is like, well, why did you charge money? Making it clear like this was probably blackmail and extortion because the nymphomania husband and wife trying to sort out their marital issues by bringing other people into the marriage thing didn't make sense in the context of taking money for it. They do a great job in the film of introducing very early on that one of the strains on the marriage is that the husband feels like he has to work all the time in order to pay the bills. Like they're having an intimate moment together and then he gets a phone call saying he has to go into work and she's like, what? this is your night off, you shouldn't have to go in. And he, and it's clear that they actually need the money and that's part of the obstacle to their marriage, to, to having intimacy together. So... Not her getting a job. <laughs> no. Which actually, this is kind of an interesting thing about the Kathy Willits story. She apparently used to work for a stock brokerage firm and then her husband was like, that's not bringing in enough money, being a secretary for these people. So he made her work at a topless bar for a while and then that didn't work out. And so then I think prostitution was her job at a certain point. But I feel like it at least in the film, it sets up a motivation for her to want to do it, that if she's bringing money in, then it means that the husband might be home more. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I felt like that was actually okay, the way they explained it. I don't know how policing works nowadays in terms of how shifts work. But back then, I knew people who were cops. You have to work a certain number of night shifts because that's when crime happens, right? So a lot of these couples, it was considered a really hard thing to make work. The vast majority of it was men and there were a lot of women who felt that way. Like one, you're risking your life on a daily basis. Two, you're gone all the time. 
this is something I heard in real life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even the chief of police where I grew up in that little small town, I don't. I think he probably ended up being married at least three times. Okay, I wanted to read the Entertainment Weekly review for this movie from 1992. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I thought I'd read an excerpt from it because it's kind of interesting. Ty Burr. Oh, yeah. My fellow Dartmouth alum, Ty Burr. (laughs) Ty Burr wrote this in 1992. He reviewed Basic Instinct and three Basic Instinct knockoffs. Savage Instinct, Fatal Instinct, and Animal Instincts. (laughs) So first he reviews Basic Instinct, then he reviews Savage Instinct, then he reviews Fatal Instinct, and then comes this paragraph. But here's where the third imitation instinct makes an interesting comparison. Animal instincts may be as low rent as the other knockoffs, and stars Maxwell Caulfield and Shannon Worry are pretty hapless, but the movie doesn't dress its sleaze in MTV pretensions and is actually more compellingly weird for it. Patterned after a real case in which a Florida cop and his wife were said to have videotaped her call girl dalliances, Animal loads on the softcore sex to drowsy extreme, especially in the unrated version, but its portrait of a stale marriage enlivened when hubby starts watching his wife have sex on television ripples out from the VCR to address our own video voyeurism, and that's more daring than anything in Basic Instinct. Of course, if Hollywood really wanted to give us subversive sex, it would show us a middle-aged, overweight couple having an off night in the sack, but who'd pay money for that? <laughs> That's the point and the problem. Basic Instinct, D+. Savage Instinct, F. Fatal Instinct, F. Animal Instincts, C+. What? I don't know if I agree with Ty on this. I think Basic Instinct was a much better movie, but he gave Animal Instincts a full letter grade higher than Basic Instinct. I do agree that they could have shown that a little more. Remember, he was often watching TV. He'd come home and I just want to watch TV. He was into like that aspect of watching. They established that pretty early on before they get to him watching sex tapes. That is where your comparison to Nightcrawler, I think they could Mm -hmm. have played up that angle. Yeah, I do wonder whether the R-rated cut of the film is perhaps better than the unrated cut of the film. Because I think we watched the unrated one, right? We did. And I have a bad habit on this show of not looking at which is the best version, but which is the most complete version. Mm -hmm. I don't want to short our audience by watching an abbreviated cut of a film. And they're like, well, you didn't talk about this thing or this little scene changes the whole like. So I always go for the longest one, which might not be the best idea, you know? (laughs) Well, because I I feel like some of the sex, I'm not going to say that they are completely repetitive, but I think a way to make the film more interesting or play up some of the like, what is this about? Is this about voyeurism? Is this about female desire to at least heighten those questions would be to take out a good bit of the sex, which kind of dilutes the film, in my personal opinion. Well, they did have a scene that I liked where where they had a montage of the sex scenes. And like yes. one of them, like they're wearing like powdered wigs and everything. And it's, <laughs> oh, that was that part <laughs> that of the film. That part yes. of the film was great, where like just they just did a whole bunch of them. I'm like, okay, like this is a good way to summarize some of the avenues where we would have been going down. <laughs> you know? Right. 
Okay, I think that about wraps it up. Yep. I want to remind everybody that you can reach us at gc8podcast at gmail.com. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We need to get the word out there. We are now a year old and we need to grow. It's one of those things where for a podcast to keep working, it needs to keep branching out and getting new audience and and new blood in to, to the audience. So all I ask, get one other person, like get one other person to listen. Yeah, tell a friend. Get, you know, just do whatever you have to to get one other person to listen. Next year, we'll ask you to like get two other people maybe. But, but for now, get one other person to listen. That's all I've got to say. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off. How long have you been doing this? Long enough to know how to make a lawyer drop his briefs. <laughs>